the storyline. It, it's, been, it's been a fun week uh, hearing some feedback from uh, many of you about the, the series of messages and specifically the passage of Scripture. I've had some fun, fun conversations together, and I keep going back to Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. Scripture says this again. When the servant of the man of God, that is Elisha, got up early that next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. He was overwhelmed. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried out to Elisha. Verse 16, don't be afraid. Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, oh, Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Hyde Wesleyan Church, there are more on our side than on their side. We're in a series of messages entitled Unseen, looking at Scripture and how it reminds us of the things unseen. And last week, we, we, we jumped in with both feet to the reality that we live not only in a physical world, but we also live in a spiritual world. And we asked the question, what do you see? One prayer that we are praying together is that the Lord would open our eyes to the unseen seen. And the reality last week that we uh, tried to spend some time uh, reminding ourselves is that the enemy is very real and he is seeking to destroy the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And so our prayer continues to be, Lord, give us eyes to see those ways in which the enemy would seek to destroy, not befriend not chum up, not, not be friendly with, not uh, seek to uh, bring someone on to his side, not to come alongside and cheer someone on. But the enemy is seeking literally to destroy you and me. The temptation is real in our world to live in such a way where we give only our attention to the physical, to the here and now, to the present reality, to the things we can touch, to the things we can smell and taste and see with our physical eyes. The temptation is very real in our culture. We, we, we would know if we have a, a friend or a family member who is an atheist, if we were to ask them, is there any more to life than this? Their answer would be a hollow, resounding no. And I want you to know that even within the church of Jesus Christ today, the same same temptation exists for us to lose sight of the spiritual world in which we live. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus from Ephesians chapter 1 verse 18 is very striking again this morning. Hear it? Paul writes this, I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that the eyes of your heart would be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Do you know you have power in Christ Jesus this morning? I love how the NIV translates uh, Paul's words here. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that your eyes would be opened, that you may know, that you may see the hope to which he has called you. Let me remind you, brothers and sisters, 
If you are a Christian this morning, you are an agent of hope. You are a light in a dark place. The message of truth resounds from God in heaven through your life. You are an agent of hope. Let me take a sidebar opportunity to remind you of a, a brand new offering tomorrow night, starting tomorrow night right here in the sanctuary. Celebrate hope. If you're looking for an opportunity to join with people who are working through their life together, the pastors Doug and Karen would love for you to join them right here, 6 o'clock, together for worship, teaching, hearing testimonies of how God is using agents of hope. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 again this morning. Ephesians chapter 6 is the, the, the chapter that we often refer to when we talk about spiritual warfare or the things unseen. And again, it's in a letter from the Apostle Paul to early Christians in Ephesus, a city. He's writing to them. He's ministering to them. He's trying to encourage these persecuted early baby Christians in their faith to help them, to encourage them. And he writes this again, Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10, a final word. Paul's winding down his letter. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God. So when that day of evil comes, and it will come, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to continue to stand. Verse 14, Paul continues, Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which you can, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It's fun to look at these words from Scripture and, and imagine Paul's context and Paul's desire to continue to use this word picture of armor. Paul, as we know, is imprisoned during this letter writing to Ephesus. He's imprisoned in a prison. He's in shackles, locked up in jail, the cause of Christ in Rome. He's stuck there, and yet he uses his time, his time wisely to encourage early Christians. And I am so thankful that God's word has spanned the generations that it has, that we can be encouraged in it here and now together. Paul's using the imagery of a, a Roman soldier's armor. Maybe he's there in the cell and he's looking around and he's working on these, these letters of encouragement and, and he's looking around trying to tell the truths of, uh, of, of how it is the enemy is seeking to uh, attack believers followers of Christ and he's looking around and he's trying to think of how do I how do I help them understand what we have at our disposal to put in between us and the enemy 
Paul's saying that if it's true that the enemy is a, an attacker, he's illustrating the defenses that we have to thwart the attack. Last week, I shared with you some books that I've read in my, my life as, as a Christian, and it's been so fun, again, this week, of how many people told me, hey, uh, after church on Sunday, I went home, and I bought Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, and I started listening to it on audiobook. Others have, have desired to read it. It's, it, it's so fun to hear uh, those kinds of testimonies. And so let me take another moment just to suggest uh, another piece of media for you as a Christian. There's a movie uh, that's been produced, and sometimes I'm very cynical when it comes to movies produced by Christians, but there's a great movie called Paul, the Apostle of Christ. It's PG-13, so deal with that as you need to, but it's a movie that's been produced. It's absolutely fascinating. It follows the, the narrative of Paul, the Apostle Paul, in prison in Rome, and Luke, Luke the gospel writer, arrives to interact with him and write the story that would become the book of Acts. It's worth a watch. I don't know if it's on Netflix, but it's worth a watch. Find an opportunity if you can. But imagine with me, uh, Paul in prison, writing these words, using this, this imagery of the armor of God as he sees armor around him, and he's relaying these timeless truths of how it is we can defend against the enemy with these physical representations of armor. I love it. Over the next three weeks, I want us to focus on what I think are possibly the three main areas that the enemy seeks to attack followers of Christ. And this morning, specifically, I, I want to look at the armor we can place upon ourselves as the enemy seeks to attack our minds. We have been told that we have a helmet a helmet to put on, a, a piece of armor, and I don't know about you, but I've never been in battle where I have to put on a helmet. I have desired wholeheartedly to put on a football helmet and crash into some stuff, but I've never had the opportunity for that either. The evil one is an enemy who seeks to infiltrate even inside of our heads through our minds. The armor of God is a reminder to put on a helmet to protect our minds, to protect our, our thoughts, to protect this, this thing going on inside of our head. And the attack of the enemy is very clear. He wants you and me to lose sight, to quit on God's truth. He wants us to question things. He wants us to lose sight of the, the truth of God's word in our life, the knowledge that we have of what God calls us to. The enemy would seek to infiltrate our minds without the helmet. Without the, the helmet of protection upon our lives, the enemy would get us, would seek to have us quit on God's truth. How, how does he do that? The enemy would try to undo our thinking, maybe a, a lifetime of knowledge of who God is and how he works. We quit on God's truth when we change God's truth, when we alter it to fit our agenda, when we water God's truth down in our lives. We are falling prey to the scheme of the enemy. Hear me again, there's a battlefield in our minds. And the battle is being waged all the time. Last week I read John chapter 8, verse 44. 
Again, these are Jesus' words of a reminder of how the enemy is seeking to attack. Jesus says some pretty strong words here. John 8, for you, Jesus says, humanity, you are the children of your father, the devil. You love to do the evil things he does. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Hear it again. The enemy is not seeking to create a a, a team for himself. He is seeking to destroy. Hear it this way. The enemy knows the truth. And it scares him. And so, his scheme, his attempt, his attempt is to keep us from knowing the truth. The enemy seeks to redefine it. He has schemes to get inside your head to change the truth of God. Do you think it's a little overemphasized to continue on this way of thought? It's not. Look with me at how quickly the enemy achieves the ability to adjust the truth. And hear me again, we must put on our helmets. Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to see it again. This is chapter 2 of this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, where he writes this inspired by God. Ephesians 2, verse 1 through 5 says this, Once once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. He's telling early Christians, this is how you once were. Verse 2, you used to live this way. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Verse 3, Paul lumps himself in. All of us used to live that way. All of us, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature by our very nature. We were subject to God's anger just like everybody else. At our core. We're broken. But, verse 4, God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sinful nature, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It's only by God's grace that you have been saved. Again, here, Paul, to these early Christians in Ephesus, says you, you, you were once dead. You used to live that way. You used to live in sin, just like every other human being on, on the planet. You were guided by the enemy. All of us used to live this way, following our DNA, our, our, our sinful nature, the reminder that we are rotten since birth. Our inclinations, our desires are not holy. If you've raised children, you know the bent towards sinning that every human being has since birth. Our nature is anti-God. Our inclinations, our desires, our pursuits are not holy. They are not righteous on their own. We are a mess. Remember? We know this truth. 
We preach this truth. We, we, we talk about it. We, we, we understand in, in some of our language, in some of our teaching, in, in some of our conversations, we talk about this, this brokenness of humanity, right? We know these words of Scripture. We know this black and white truth. And yet, we know this truth. Every two years, there's an organization called Ligonier Ministries that joins with LifeWay Research, and they poll Americans. They ask them questions. They put these statements in front of uh, thousands of, of Americans, and they ask them to rate the truth of these statements in their life. And they release these findings every two years in a, a report that is in, entitled The State of Theology. You've got to see this. Just last year in 2018, statement number 11 in their research was this. Statement read this way. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Of those polled in the United States of America, 66% of Americans agreed. 66% of Americans agreed that most people are good in their core. Everybody does a little bit wrong, but most people are good inside. They desire what's right. Thankfully, the, the, the data gives the opportunity for us to dig a little bit deeper and to look at those who were polled, not their names specifically, but uh, in ways that they identified themselves. And when we look at how Christians answered these questions, of the thousands that were asked these questions, put these statements in front of, how, how did the church of Jesus Christ respond to this? As we look deeper into the data, let me tell you, those who identified as Christians didn't do much better. 65% of us, two, almost two out of every three Christians who were placed this statement in front of, agreed. They agreed with everyone sins a little, but most people are good. And in my mind, in my visual mind, I see The demons who are in charge of influencing culture and the church, pushing back from their desks and sighing a sigh of relief when they realize these kinds of polling numbers are real. That two out of every three Christians thinks everybody, everybody's good. Everybody's good by nature. Most people. Desire to do what's right. Why is this a big deal? Why, 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 why does it matter? Why, 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 why do we spend so much time? Why, why would it matter if, if we believed or didn't believe that most people are, are good by nature? And maybe you've been caught up in this trick of the enemy to believe such a thing. Why would it be such a big deal for us to believe that most people have good, positive motives, that most people mean well, that they desire to do what's right? If we believed that, if that was true, then why would humanity need a Savior? Let 
We would also buy into the lie that no one deserves the wrath of a holy God, that no one needs to admit that they're a sinner, that no one would need to turn from their, their wicked nature and repent of their sin. Hyde Wesleyan Church, don't be tricked. Put on your helmet. Scripture is clear. We are broken since birth. Every single one of us, nothing you do can earn your salvation. Nothing that you want to do is holy or righteous. Here's another one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 10, 8 through 10. God saved you, Paul writes. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God, Paul writes. Salvation is not a reward for the good things, for the good works you have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew, afresh, in Christ Jesus. So that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We know that, right? We can't do enough right on our own, right? We would believe that if we are in Sunday school today and someone asked us a question. Surely everyone in this room knows we can't earn our salvation. We hold that truth. We talk about it. We reference it often in 2016, the same organization put this statement in front of thousands of Americans. The statement said this, by the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. Surprise? Half, 52% of Americans agreed with that. 52% of Americans agree. Surely Christians did a little bit better here. I'm sorry to say. Same number. One out of every two Christians agreed or strongly agreed that they can partly contribute to eternity in heaven. One out of every two Christians believes that the good they do has at least a partial effect on whether or not they earn eternity. Hyde Wesleyan Hear me again. Good works are not how we earn our salvation. Rather, I, I love this way of saying it. Good works is how we honor the gift of salvation that's been given. Good works, what we do is how we honor that gift. What Jesus has offered us, you can't earn it. I can't earn it. It is a free gift. Again, do you see how easily God's word can be distorted? If, if, if we would think, if we would truly buy into that, that idea that there's a way to earn heaven, then there's no reason for Jesus to come and save humanity. Do enough, right? This is so prominent in our culture. This is so prevalent. And in people that I talk to on a week-to-week basis, this is so permeated our, our culture and the church of Jesus Christ, that if I do enough right to outweigh the wrong, then cha-ching, I earn my name badge. My ticket gets stamped and I'm in. Nothing could be further from the truth. Again, the enemy pushes back from his desk and thinks, yes, one out of every two Christians has taken off their helmet and allowed God's truth to be twisted and distorted. The enemy's attack is for you and me to drift from God's perfect truth. To distort it, 
to rewrite it, to retranslate it, to disagree with it, to water it down, to adjust it. Common opinion, popular thought, whatever it is my neighbors think, whatever it is my, my, my family believes, whatever it is my, my co-workers nod in agreement about around the, the water cooler or the break table, whatever it is my friends at school say, whatever the majority holds as the truth, whatever it is, will often differ largely from what God's truth is. And so I ask, what are the battles in your head? What are the questions? What are the truths that you are beginning to maybe even acknowledge in your own head right now that you have had some questions and you have been remembering some things of your childhood if you've grown up in the church or if you've heard some things from this pulpit and you have said, you know what, I don't know. What are the battles in your head? I, I don't mean for you to answer that, obviously. We could spend a lot of time there. But can I tell you something? Believe it or not, your pastor has a brain too. I've got a mind. And I want you to know that the enemy works tirelessly to find us with our guard down. You know that? The enemy would love nothing more than for your pastor to wake up and not put the helmet on. The enemy would love nothing more than for your pastors, the the, the teachers here in this church, those on our board, those in leadership, those volunteering to love on kids right now. The enemy would love nothing more than to find any one of you Hyde Wesleyans with your helmet off. To be louder than God's word. To remind you more often than you are willing to spend in God's truth of the world's truth. And to help you second guess what you know. To cause you to adjust. Surely God doesn't really mean that. In the internet age. To find someone else who believes like you want to believe. It's pretty easy. I know that the battles in your head exist. They exist in my own head. So just think about what it is you're struggling with right now. And let me encourage you, don't quit on God's truth. Don't settle for less than God's truth. Don't buy a watered-down version of truth. Don't run from God's truth. I want you to hear, it's healthy to question things. It's healthy to ask questions. I hope you've heard me say it before. I've had some private conversations with men and women in this room where I have encouraged you to ask questions. Can I just say it again? God is big enough for your questions. Just because you have some questions that you don't feel like are answered, 
doesn't mean God changes in the least. He is God. If you grew up in the 80s, like I did, yeah, I'm young. I'm going to keep saying it that way. We used to get booster shots. You remember booster shots? Anybody love them? We got immunized, whatever that word is. We got the shots when we were babies, and then sometime later on, we had to get these boosters that were supposed to reignite something, and all they left me with was the ability to tune in FM radios in my head. You're laughing. You don't do that? Booster shots were designed to help kickstart some things, right? Bring us back up to the level. And this morning, I want to close with two truth booster shots for you and me. True reminders from God's word that are uh, reminders in a culture today that seriously turns a blind eye to these two truths. First one is this. In your relationships, always value others above yourself. It's been so twisted. It's been so minimized. It's been so overspoken, maybe, that it's lost its truth. In relationships, always value others above yourself. Again, Paul, to the church at Philippi, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, inspired by God, says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You know how much we could win if we lived out this truth? You know how selfish you are? I'm sorry. You know how selfish I am? Pretty selfish. You know how easy this truth gets minimized in a culture that preaches and teaches you deserve to be happy? You deserve better than whatever it is you're currently receiving? You deserve. What if we held on to God's word here? In our relationships? In our marriages? In our dating relationships? In our friendships? In our work relationships? What if we put others first, truly? Are you doing that? Do it better. Selfishness, since Adam and Eve first sinned in the Garden of Eden, selfishness has permeated our DNA. We go back to this. We go back to this being the root cause of every sinful behavior in humanity. God says, put others first, but my world, our world, our culture, our surroundings say, you deserve it. You come first. God says, live humbly, serve others, take second seat. Thinking of others as better than myself seems far off in a culture that continues the mantra 
of me first, mine first, me, 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 mine, mine, mine. In relationships, always value others above yourself. Second booster shot, lean over and put a shot in your neighbor's arm. Don't do it. Second booster shot, in all you do, you are a kingdom player. What do I mean? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, Paul to the church at Corinth, early Christians, he's saying this reminder to you and to me and to them this morning. God has given us this task, verse, or chapter 5, verse 18. God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave you and me, he gave us as Christians, this wonderful message of reconciliation through hope. That we are Christ's ambassadors. And God is making his appeal through you and through me. And we speak for Christ when we say, come back to relationship with God. You want to know your purpose again this morning? Do you want to know why you're here? You're an ambassador for God. I, I cannot say that enough times. You've heard me say it again and again that the last thing I try to say to the kids before they leave for school or I drop them off, remember whose kid you are. I got to stop saying kid probably, huh? We are ambassadors, agents of hope. We are reflectors. We are trying to, desiring to bring honor and glory to the name above all names because that's God's goal is to reconcile, to make what is wrong right. What's wrong? There's a divide between humanity and pure holiness, the God who made you. The only bridge, draw the picture in your brain again, the only bridge between a broken, worthless, fallen since birth humanity is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only offer at bridging that divide. Jesus is our only hope. His love, his offer, his reach to us is free, and it is available today. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, please talk to me about him. Please talk to a family member this morning who made you come to church. Is it okay to make people come to church? I don't know. I hope so. Will you stand with me? The devil, your enemy, is seeking to attack your mind today and every day. So put on the helmet. Protect against it. He wants to distort truth. He wants to water it down. He wants you to believe partial truths. He wants you to believe little bits. He wants to put doubts into your mind today. Stand firm, Christian brother. 
as you put on that helmet every single day. Stand firm, Christian sister. Every single day as you place that helmet upon your head. Stand firm in knowing God's truth stands. It's on ground. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you help us to put on our helmets, to protect our minds, to stand firm, to know the truth. Maybe, Lord, the truths that we've learned our entire lives help us to stand firm on those. We acknowledge the truth that the enemy is seeking to devour and destroy. Likewise, he's working hard to infiltrate the minds of men and women, boys and girls. We see this in our culture. We see it in our churches. Lord, would you enable your people to put our helmets on, to put up that block between the, the enemy's schemes and attempts to thwart that attack. Help us, Lord, to remember that we can't build the helmet ourselves. Would you help us right now, Lord, to receive that defense from you? Lord, I pray against the enemy's attempts at distorting and watering down your truth. God, here and now I pray that you would help us to be people of your word, that know your truth, that don't seek for an alternate reality or a, a difference of opinion. Lord, help us to hold fast to your holy, perfect word. Help us to see the attempts in our culture, in our circles of influence, of the ways in which the enemy seeks to distort. And Lord, please bring us back to your truth. I pray your hand of protection again upon your people. Lord, we know of attacks even this past week upon the hearts and lives of men and women, the minds, the work, the desires of men and women in this place. And God, I pray that your hand would be upon them. All of us, would you protect us, I pray. Would you remind us as our eyes are opened that there are more on our side than on theirs. You are mighty in this place and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. And God's people said,